Okay, so today's lecture is about King John. Uh, I think King John's a fabulously interesting play, a very under-read play, uh, and a play I hope, and one of my aims in this lecture is to suggest to you some of the things I think uh, King John uh, is trying to ask about, is trying to think about. It's a remarkably sophisticated play in its themes um, and in the way it uses historical sources, and that's one of the things I want to try and bring out. It was probably written in 1595, or maybe slightly earlier. It isn't the first of Shakespeare's history plays, probably the second part of Henry VI is the first history play that Shakespeare writes, but it is chronologically the earliest bit of medieval history uh, that Shakespeare touches on. So these these are events at the end of the 12th, beginning of the 13th century. King John's not published until the first folio in 1623, and then... Logically, it's the first in the history play category because, as I just said, it's the chronologically earliest monarch, King John. So the question I'd like to frame this lecture around is uh, Prince Arthur. I'll tell you a bit about Prince Arthur in a minute. But the question is, who killed Prince Arthur? Who killed Prince Arthur? But let's start by uh, summarising the plot of the play. So King John is a sardonic and rather unheroic history play in which the question of rightful succession, the question of who is the rightful king, is subjected to a sustained deconstruction. So the play is all about claim and counterclaim about who should be the king of England. The main claimants are King John himself and the young prince Arthur, his nephew. Each of the claimants has a powerful female advocate, and one of the ways the play is structured is through these kinds of parallelism. For John, the advocate is his mother, Eleanor, and for Arthur, his mother, Constance. Also on John's side is the clever Philip Falconbridge, acknowledged as the illegitimate son of Richard I. He is always called Bastard, and we're going to talk about him quite a bit in a minute. On Arthur's side are King Philip of France, the Duke of Austria, and the Dauphin. The two armies meet at the besieged town of Angers in France, and when it proves impossible to decide who is the real king, the rightful king, it's decided that they should enter an alliance uh, marked with the Dauphin marrying Blanche, John's niece. Constance feels betrayed by this because Obviously, the kings have stitched up uh, an arrangement which which essentially cuts out Arthur. A legate from the Pope, Cardinal Pandolf, arrives. Uh, His business is to press the Pope's choice for Archbishop of Canterbury. When John refuses to agree to this choice, the papal legate Pandolf excommunicates him. Uh, And then Pandolf goes on to stir up the uh, old war with the King of France and gets the battle started again. In the ensuing battle between the King of France and King John, the young Prince Arthur is captured and Hubert is appointed to kill him, to kill Arthur. He's dissuaded because uh, the child is so innocent, but Hubert nevertheless announces that Arthur is dead and the English nobles then desert John hearing that the French have invaded and that both Eleanor and Constance have died. There's a number of prophecies which tell John that the loss of his crown is imminent. 
The young Prince Arthur, who was not killed, is trying to escape and falls to his death from the walls. The discovery of his body confirms the lords have turned against John. John makes peace with Pandolf, the cardinal, but the Dauphin refuses to end the wars. The English lords are torn between the two sides. King John, who is holed up in Swineshead Abbey, is poisoned by a monk. At his death, it's announced that Pandolf has brokered a peace and the nobles swear allegiance to their new king, John's son, Henry. Now, it's a messy and rather undignified story that's surprisingly candid about the way that monarchical government is constructed rather than inherent. So it's um, a pragmatic rather than essential property. Instead of any sustained idea about the divine of kings, divine right of kings, so that idea about uh, the rightful sovereign being uh, the one anointed by God, that philosophy which is hanging around, say, Richard II. Instead of that, here we have a series of claim and counterclaim which makes any idea of kingship somehow ridiculous. At the beginning of Act Two, the spokesman for the besieged town Angers is faced with the armies of King Philip of France and King John of England. He holds to the letter of his allegiance. We are, he says, the King of England's subjects. For him and in his right, we hold this town. John replies, acknowledge then the king and let me in, but receives the disconcerting answer, this can we not, but he that proves the king to him Will we prove loyal? Philip, King of France, has a similar exchange with this same spokesman. Who is your king? And again, the reply comes, the king of England, when we know the king. The king is the king. The circularity of the argument replaces an idea of succession with a sort of cyclical obfuscation and substitutes pragmatism for divine right. The signifier king has come hopelessly adrift from the signified here, or it is floating around, potentially attaching itself to quite different factions. Questions about the notion of rightful kingship, then, are here deconstructed in the confusion of the battlefield. And the play never, I think, makes it clear to us who is the rightful king or who we should think is uh, uh, the right king of England. In fact, it seems rather radically to suggest that there really isn't one. Nor does it even suggest who might be the better king. It presents actually a rather unenviable choice. John, on the one hand, is weak and indecisive. His rival, Arthur, may be innocent, but he's, so, he's presented as being extremely young, um, crying, for example, when his mother and grandmother raised their voices in Act 2, Scene 1. So the play, then, doesn't engage with dynastic or divine right or with ability as criterion for judging rightful kingship. If we look at the intervention of Pandolf, the Pope's emissary, we can see uh, that part of his purpose is to bring out the self-interest with which everyone in this play acts. There's a scene in which he persuades the Dauphin that the death of Prince Arthur... the the candidate around whom they're supposed to be fighting, that the death of Prince Arthur at John's hand would actually be preferable for the Dauphin 
since uh, he, he then could make a claim to the English throne via his wife, Blanche. It works as a miniature version, a tiny uh, conversation, which is a, a mini, mini version of the operational selfishness which governs King John. Important, I think, to this idea of any, uh, this deconstruction of any idea of just or rightful sovereignty is the play's important representation of its central character, the bastard. There's no equivalent figure in the sources for the play. The bastard, probably the play's most charismatic character, certainly its largest character in terms of the number of lines spoken, is an entirely Shakespearean invention, knocking King John out of the centre of his own play, just as he decenters him from the action from the very first time he enters the stage. The bastard erupts into the first scene of the play, so he's brought in right at the beginning, as an embodiment of its thoroughgoing theme of undermining lineage, dynasty and succession. Act 1, scene 1, follows uh, a brief exchange about uh, Arthur's claim to the throne uh, and uh, the the war with France. So it follows that public, political conversation with a strange domestic dispute, the dispute between two Falconbridge brothers about whether the younger one, who's called Robert, is in fact his father's true heir because the older one, Philip, is not in fact the son of his mother's husband. We can see immediately that this dispute encapsulates and domesticates the play's major theme of rival claimants, disrupted inheritance, and the difficulty of adjudicating what really happened in the past. And it also reinforces uh, something interesting about King John, the play's unusually prominent role for mothers, As we know, mothers tend to be written out of Shakespeare's plays. Twenty years ago, the critic Mary Beth Rose published an important article asking in its title, Where are the mothers in Shakespeare? And it's still a good question. Again and again, in comedy and in tragedy, Shakespeare focuses on the relationship between fathers and daughters, between Aegeus and Hermia in Midsummer Night's Dream, or Brabantio and Desdemona in Othello, or Prospero Miranda in The Tempest. And for the most part, the mothers are absent and entirely silenced. We can see this work of erasure, most graphically perhaps, in the quarto text of Much Ado About Nothing, 1600. Clearly at some point in drafting the play Much Ado About Nothing, Shakespeare conceived of a role for hero's mother, Inogen, the wife to Leonardo. There's a prominent role for a mother figure in Shakespeare's sources for uh, Much Ado, and she, in fact, uh, in the sources, uh, is crucial in bringing um, Hero's uh, reputation back uh, from the calumny uh, uh, Don John has put it into. So there's a prominent role for a mother character in the sources of the play, and it seems that Shakespeare intended a mother in his play too, But all we have of Inogen are her ghostly traces, two entry stage directions, including the one at the very opening of the play, but no speeches and no acknowledgement from any other character that she's actually there. Most editors then take the pragmatic decision to amend her out of the play uh, at all. So uh, it's an interesting sort of textual um, uh, 
uh, example of uh, how a, a mother figure uh, sort of disappears before our very eyes. But we might think King John then single-handedly is trying to make up for all this, bringing on three women uh, pronouncedly represented in their maternal capacities. We'll talk more about the formidable Queen Eleanor, who is the mother of King John, and Constance, the mother of Prince Arthur, in a minute. But here in this opening scene, talking about the paternity of Philip Falconbridge, the relevant figure is Lady Falconbridge, his mother. She enters the first act of the play to confirm what John and Eleanor already believe, that Philip is the illegitimate son of Richard the Lionheart. They've already confirmed this through knighting Philip and giving him the new name of Richard Plantagenet. Paternity then is declared here rather than proved, but Lady Falconbridge's role is to confirm that the bastard is indeed the son of Richard. By long and vehement suit, she explains, I was seduced to make room for him in my husband's bed. Even therefore, at the moment when paternity is established as being definitive of male identity. The bastard is new christened with his father's patronym. The entry of the mother allies the bastard with John and with Arthur. All three are fatherless sons shaped by dominant female influence. The bastard embraces uh, his mother's news about his true paternity with considerable delight it's part of the play's off-key ethical framework from the start. To be the bastard son of the king uh, is, uh, is, is a high status, a higher status than to be uh, the respectable son of the yeoman, uh, sort of country gentry, Falconbridge. So literal illegitimacy confirms legitimate status and a new identity onto Philip Falconbridge. It's signalled in the play by his new name, although perhaps significantly nobody ever again calls him Richard Plantagenet. So he's named it uh, in this uh, opening scene, but it's never used in the play. He might now be thought to be a further claimant on the tenuous, tenuously held English throne, since he can now claim his ancestry to an undisputed king, Richard I. But that plot suggestion is never really developed in the play. The bastard, as the one character who might have made an effective king, is one who never aspires to that role. Instead, cheerfully, he undermines, often in asides, the claims of the other characters to behave uh, in a, a way which is anything other than illegitimate. So the purpose of introducing him seems to be to foreground and preemptively somehow to stymie issues of legitimacy and inheritance right at the start of the play and to make this clever charismatic figure the embodiment of the play's queasy ethical shifts. It's typical I think of King John's undermining of certainties that even illegitimacy here is not quite legitimate. As John himself points out a bastard is somebody born to an unmarried mother. Lady Falconbridge was married at the time but just not to her baby's father. Technically that does not make the baby illegitimate. It underlines the fact that Philip Falconbridge's bastardy is figurative more than literal. And just as the charge of bastardy is used within the play to challenge the authority of different characters, there's a scene where Eleanor, for example, uh, accuses uh, Constance of bearing Arthur illegitimately. 
So too the character of the bastard works to destabilise or even sabotage the play's attempts to secure succession and an idea of rightful kingship. And that, I think, has an impact on the conclusion of King John, which I'm going to come to later. The role of the bastard, I think, also foregrounds the act of writing history itself. As a character whose identity is peculiarly marked by paternity and therefore by the past, but one who is invented for the present purposes of the play, the bastard can be seen as a figure for that act of historical reinvention. He's exactly the kind of sardonic, disengaged commentary figure Shakespeare most enjoys inventing. Mercutio, we might think of in Romeo and Juliet, Falstaff, to some extent, in, for the first part of Henry IV, Enobarbus in Antony and Cleopatra. These are all figures with no real equivalent in their source texts and all characters at a kind of oblique angle to the drama which enmeshes the other characters. So the bastard is a kind of filter between the historical past and the play's present, an unauthoritative or illegitimate historian, or an embodiment of a kind of invented history. On the stage, he operates something like embodied quotation marks, ironising what's happening before our very eyes. And in this he shares something with the character I want to get to for the main focus of the lecture, Prince Arthur. Let's approach Arthur via Shakespeare's sources. Shakespeare's main source for King John is Raphael Hollinshed's Compendium of Historical Material, published as his Chronicles, first in 1577 and then in an expanded edition which Shakespeare almost always uses, in 1587. There is a slight complication about the sources for King John, the existence of a quarto text published in 1591 and called the, uh, it's called The Troublesome Reign of King John, The Troublesome Reign of King John. Critics are undecided about whether this represents a source for Shakespeare or a derivation from Shakespeare. Its outline is similar to Shakespeare's King John in many respects, but there are a couple of significant differences. One, which I'll go over quite quickly, is the two plays presentation of Catholicism. The earlier play, The Troublesome Reign of King John, is much more concerned to present John as a kind of proto-Protestant. Uh, it picks up sort of a, 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 an analogical history which thought of John as a version of Henry VIII, the person who broke from papal authority uh, broke, broke decisively from papal authority and asserted a kind of English nationalism. So the Troublesome Reign follows that line of historical uh, parallel which sees John as a proto-Protestant and it's a much more explicitly anti-Catholic play than is Shakespeare's. So if you're interested in the question of Shakespeare and religion, how Shakespeare represents religion or more contentiously what Shakespeare thinks about religion, this makes the comparison of the Shakespeare play King John with this earlier troublesome reign of King John quite a useful source. In the Shakespeare play, King John approaches questions of religious politics with the same pragmatism as he approaches any other kind of politics. He submits to Cardinal Pandolf's authority when it seems expedient, rather than, as in the troublesome reign, the earlier play, maintaining the challenge to the Pope as it were an article of faith.
So one area of difference between these two plays whose relationship uh, is, is difficult to pin down is the representation of Catholicism. The second area of divergence between these two plays is the presentation of the death of Prince Arthur. A cluster of scenes in the middle of Shakespeare's play dilate around the question of Arthur's death. In Shakespeare's Act 3, Scene 2, so right in the middle of the play, uh, that may suggest, if you follow the idea, that the middle of the play gives us some really important key uh, event uh, around which the play pivots, here we would have uh, the capture of Prince Arthur, John's rival, in the battle with the forces of King Philip of France. So that happens in 3-2. In the next scene, John appoints Hubert to kill his prisoner. And meanwhile, in the French camp, Constance, Arthur's mother, appears with her hair loose, a clear sign of female madness or female distraction on the early modern stage. Uh, we might think about the stage direction for Ophelia's entry in Hamlet, for example. Uh, and Constance is ranting with grief for her lost son. Cardinal Pandolf discusses privately with the Dauphin the inevitability uh, and the um, uh, benefit of Arthur's death at John's hands. We then meet Hubert, who now has a letter apparently instructing him to kill Arthur and is heating irons in a brazier to sizzle out the young prince's eyes. It's not entirely clear in narrative terms why he is doing this, since it would be torture rather than murder and unlikely probably to kill the victim. It might therefore be interesting to compare this scene physically, dramaturgically and thematically with the blinding of the Duke of Gloucester in King Lear. That's what I'm going to be talking about in my next lecture. But Arthur speaks so innocently and sweetly uh, to Hubert that he cannot carry out this mission. Uh, in a little exchange which anticipates Desdemona and, and Othello with the handkerchief, uh, Arthur says he will bind Hubert's uh, headache with, a, with his own handkerchief. Uh, and he undertakes to protect Hubert. So Hubert says he can't kill uh, Arthur, he's too sweet to be killed. Uh, and he undertake, undertakes to protect him, but to tell King John that he is dead. Hubert goes to see King John then in the next scene. John has had himself re-crowned. Uh, his nobles tell him this makes his claim look, to the throne look much weaker rather than stronger, but John seems not to see this. Uh, and Hubert, So Hubert goes to see him to tell him that Arthur is dead. And this is a scene full of markers that John's days are numbered. The nobles are antagonistic. A messenger brings news that Eleanor and Constance have both died. The bastard brings news that the country is full of rumours that John will fall. And he brings in a prophet who says John will give up his crown before noon on the next Ascension Day. When Hubert uh, tells John that Arthur is dead, that he's carried out his, um, his, his wishes, John's nobles accuse him of murder, accuse John, that is, of murder, and leave him plotting vengeance. John berates Hubert for killing Arthur, and eventually Hubert admits that, in fact, he hasn't. So, apparently reprieved, John tells him to run like mad to announce that Arthur is still alive to stop the nobles going over to the opposition. The very next scene, we see Arthur disguised as a ship boy, alone on stage, sort of walking unsteadily along the top of the walls, falling down or jumping down, not quite clear which, and dying on the stones. 
The most prominent of John's noblemen find his body just as the bastard is trying to persuade them to return to John and just before Hubert arrives with the now erroneous news that Arthur is still alive. Now, the synopsis I've given you is of the play's central six scenes, all of which are deeply concerned with the fate of Prince Arthur. Okay, so this isn't one of those plot themes which we drop for a while and then pick up you know, a few scenes later. All these scenes uh, are, are concerned, centrally concerned with what's happening to Arthur. I hope you can see from the outline the ironies and, in, in fact, the bathos of Arthur's eventual death. So Arthur is allowed to escape blinding, only to fall fatally moments later and apparently unprompted from the walls of somewhere. We don't quite know. We never knew it had any walls until Arthur was up there uh, walking on them. Arthur, uh, sorry, Hubert has to flip from preparing to kill Arthur to pretending to have killed him to admitting that he hasn't and to finding out that he is dead anyway. It's hard to know quite what to make of this. And I asked, who kills Prince Arthur? In Shakespeare's play, it isn't quite John, although the consequences of the death of Arthur might be seen to be part of John's downfall. I'll come to that in a minute. It's not really clear in Shakespeare's play who does kill Prince Arthur, only uh, that he has to die. In The Troublesome Reign, that earlier play, Hubert carries out John's instructions to blind Arthur uh, with those uh, heated irons. He still reports falsely that Arthur is dead, but Arthur's subsequent fall from the walls at least then has some justification. He was blind. I want to suggest that Shakespeare makes the question of who killed Arthur, its occluded causes and effects, how he makes that question into a crucial illustration of something about how history works, and I want to suggest he gets the suggestion for this exploration from his source. We always talk about Hollinshed's chronicles under the name of their apparent author, Raphael Hollinshed. But Hollinshed was uh, editor, collector, a kind of uh, his historical MC for the great collaborative work of Tudor historiography that bears his name. He was not its author. The material includes writers with quite different political opinions and also from quite different historical moments. It's a compendium, uh, not a monograph. And this multivocality, this sense that the history is drawn from different voices, is not suppressed in the Chronicles. There isn't a sort of editorial voice which tries to even that out. Often quite different interpretations of the same event are given without a definitive editorial judgment. And the death of Prince Arthur is one of those moments of historiographical self-consciousness. I'm going to give you the passage from Hollinshed. It's quite a, long, uh, quite a long extract. But now, touching the manner in very deed of the end of this Arthur, writers make sundry reports. Nevertheless, certain it is, that in the year next ensuing he was removed from Falais unto the castle or tower of Rouen, out of the which there was not any that would confess that ever he saw him go alive. Some have written that as he essayed to have escaped out of prison and proving to climb over the walls of the castle, he fell into the river of Seine and so was drowned. Other write that through very grief and languor he pined away and died of natural sickness. But some affirm that King John secretly caused him to be murdered and made away. So as it is not th thoroughly agreed upon in what sort he finished his days, 
But, verily, King John was had in great suspicion, either worthily or not, the Lord knoweth. Yet, how extremely soever he dealt with his nephew, he released and set at liberty diverse of those lords that were taken prisoners with him, namely Hugh Le Brun and Savary Le Malion, the one to his great trouble and hindrance and the other to his gain, for Hugh Le Brun afterwards levied and occasioned sore wars against him, but Savary Le Malion continued ever after his loyal subject, doing to him very agreeable service, as hereafter may appear. So the account of the death of Prince Arthur that Shakespeare encounters then is deliberately here set up as a source of interpretive confusion. Writers make sundry reports. Some give an account of a, a, a bungled escape plan, others about dying through natural causes, and yet others about John's uh, own role in this. So writers make sundry reports. What really happened, only the Lord knoweth. Arthur's death thus gets to the heart of the historiographical enterprise. Hollinshed admits that all we have is different reports. The truth, the event itself, is fugitive and irrecoverable. And even though this is obviously the case with all historical events, it's here in the death of Arthur that it is foregrounded. Now Shakespeare's work with this part of the source I think is quite interesting to see. How does he absorb this sense of a composite and contradictory historical record onto the dramaturgy of an unfolding narrative play? Or, to put it another way, how can the play respond to or translate this moment of historical uncertainty? Well, we might think that the sequence of events in the play around the death of Arthur that I narrated a few minutes ago goes some way to explain this. Although the play doesn't quite give us the contradictory testimony about causation that the Chronicles acknowledges, it does muddy the waters about Arthur's death. For one thing, Arthur's death is so heavily foreshadowed as to have really already happened right from the start of the play. We know Shakespeare's weakness for prattling young children. Uh, the historical Arthur was 16 at the time of his death, but I think his presentation in this play suggests a younger child. And so we know, we know Shakespeare's weakness such that we know really that if a young, vocal, slightly precocious child is introduced into the play, it's generally in order that it can be murdered. Macduff's son in Macbeth, Mamilius in The Winter's Tale, the young princes in Richard III. Arthur's death then is prefigured generically, at least for us, who probably come to King John, which is not one of Shakespeare's best-known or most popular plays, after these more familiar examples. But there are internal triggers for this inevitability too. One of the most compelling speeches in King John is Constance's lament for her son, Arthur. This is from Act 3, Scene 4. Grief fills the room up of my absent child, lies in his bed, walks up and down with me, puts on his pretty looks, repeats his words remembers me of all his gracious parts, stuffs out his vacant garments with his form. Thus have I reason to be fond of grief. Fare you well. Had you such a loss as I, I could give better comfort than you do. It's a striking speech, often picked up by biographical critics as a response to the death of Shakespeare's young son Hamnet in 1596. Many of the datings of the play, the traditional dating of the play, is 1596 solely because of this reason. There's no other evidence for that. 
But what's interesting here about it is that it actually preempts Arthur's death. Constance's verbal lament and her physical distraction is for a son who is uh, taken in captivity, not a son who is dead. And the fact that this moment is often elided with grief for a dead Arthur in criticism of the play makes clear how it functions proleptically, anticipatorily. We don't get another... uh, I suppose Constance has got to do her grieving before she disappears from the play. uh, This is a part of King John's pragmatism, is to get rid of characters when it's finished using them, uh, to get rid of them quite uh, dispassionately, uh, which it does with Constance. So she's got to get it in early, I guess, uh, but she's doing it here, the point is, before Arthur has died. So in this, Constance's grief is like the other prophecies, omens and anticipations of the future of the play, perhaps most explicitly in the person of Peter of Pomfret, brought in to prophesy John's downfall. Arthur is already dead to the play at this point then, in a different version of his demise, which is analogous to those different narratives acknowledged in the Chronicles. We can see other almost deaths in the protracted story of Arthur's end across the scenes of the play, almost tortured to death by Hubert, reported as dead to John, mourned by the lords before he is in fact dead. Um, This is the Earl of uh, Pembroke. (coughs) I'll go with thee and find the inheritance of a forced grave, the blood which owned the breadth of all this isle, three foot of it doth hold. Bad world, the while, this must not be long... Sorry... This must not be thus born, and ere long I doubt. So these seem to me to be anticipatory versions of stories about historical narratives of Arthur's death, which are in some way the equivalent of the interpretative impasse Shakespeare found in his chronicle sources. The question of who kills Arthur then is not really clear, and although John ends up somehow taking the blame, the play offers a number of opposing narratives, daringly juxtaposing chance, accident and malign agency in its depiction of Arthur on the walls. The stage direction for Act 4, Scene 3 has Enter Arthur disguised as a ship boy on the walls. As I've already suggested, it's a puzzling turn of events. Firstly, why is Arthur disguised as a ship boy? There's no precedent in the sources Uh, and no particular uh, reason for him to do so. It's hard to tell quite where the scene takes place. According to the fiction of the play, this is somewhere in England. Uh, It's in the Tower in Rouen, according to the historical sources that we uh, just just heard. But neither location really explains the costume. Nor does it explain why Arthur is dangerously on the walls of the prison, town or castle when the last time we saw him, Hubert had vowed to protect him. But Arthur's death has been so foreshadowed in the play that it manages to come both as an inevitability and as a surprise. It's dramatically interesting in that it probably must use the upper stage in some way, the balcony or some similar space, uh, to uh, indicate this dangerous elevation uh, of Arthur at this point. So it's dramatically interesting in, in that use of the stage, but narratively anticlimactic, since we already knew this was going to happen. So there's something about a kind of rise and fall which is both literal on the stage, which is something about the rhythm of the narrative uh, of the play, and which is a sort of de casibus kind of tragedy. You know, people In tragedy, people fall, don't they? We don't usually mean they literally fall off a, off a wall and smash themselves on some stones uh, underneath, but we do mean it here. 
And the scene has, of course, a kind of dark humour to it. Arthur, teetering on the walls dressed as a shipboy, is the play teetering on the edge of farce. Does the play drop also to the stones at this point? And we can't really manage entirely straight-faced to tell a story in which someone who pretends he has killed someone comes to tell everyone he didn't really did it, and while he does so, discovers that they're all looking down at the mangled body uh, of the supposed victim. So the question of who kills Arthur is obscured by this curiously extended vision of his near-death, fake death, resurrection, and real death, which is, of course, itself fake, theatrical. It's hard to imagine a staging of the scene uh, on the early modern stage which makes the death of Arthur believable, which makes the drop uh, from the walls believable, although some recent productions, uh, one at the RSC, for example, which gave a, a kind of uh, heart-stopping, sort of sweaty palm version of, of, of Arthur walking right across the top of the stage. So if the question of who kills Arthur is muddy, so too is the issue of why he dies, or at least what the consequences are. Critics, as I've said, often see the death of Arthur as the turning point in the play, and it is to some extent the presenting reason, the presenting reason the nobles have for deserting King John. But in what sense it brings about John's decline, I think, is questionable. Here I want to just uh, reach back to the issue of illegitimacy I discussed earlier. If the character of the bastard and his acknowledgement as such in the play's very first scene sets out King John's thoroughgoing challenge to models of patrilinear history, then he might also be seen to challenge models of historical sequence and causation. One of the ways King John seems to me a deconstructed kind of history play is that simple connections of cause and effect are repeatedly disrupted or undermined. We expect a plot, one thing leading consequently and consequentially to another, when what we get is a story, one thing following sequentially onto another. And that's a distinction uh, we've had before in these lectures from from E.M. Forster in aspects of the novel. And you'll remember that Forster's example in that case, uh, which has become such a cliché of of narrative theory, is actually quite pertinent here. Remember, he gives us his example of a story, the king died and the queen died, and his example of a plot, the king died and the queen died of grief. So the difference between plot and story is is about why a death happens uh, for Forster, and that's the same here. The consequences of a death in our case, Arthur's, are material to this discussion of King John. Does Arthur die and John fall because of it, i.e. a plot, or does Arthur die and John fall, i.e. a story? As often in Shakespeare, I think we readers, uh, we critics, work hard to push story towards plot. Okay, So plot has a higher status for us than story, uh, so we will often... in sort of interpose uh, the causal, the connective links uh, which, which make a plot from a story. So we fill in causation uh, to try and fill out a narrative of intent. So Arthur's death comes in Act 4, Scene 3. The play is coming towards its conclusion. It can be read as the catalyst for the nobles turning against King John. But in other ways, it doesn't seem to work really uh, at all uh, in King John as a plot, Amid amid the confusion of the battle in Act 5, John is persuaded to retreat to the abbey at Swineshead. 
he leaves the field complaining, weakness possesseth me and I am faint. Weakness possesseth me and I am faint. And then his enemies report that he hath left the field sore sick. So we think that John is uh, in, in a decline of some, of some sort here. But shortly afterwards we hear from Hubert that the king is poisoned by a monk. And the bastard sort of standing in for the spectators at this point questions this rather improbable turn of events. Hubert confirms, a monk, I tell you, a resolved villain whose bowels suddenly burst out. Now, this homicidal monk, who we've never heard of before, we never see, and who apparently has no motivation beyond his own monkish villainy, is brought in by the plot simply to dispatch John. He's a kind of malign deus ex machina. The effects on John are rapid and irreversible. This is John's dying speech. Within me is a hell, and there the poison is, as a fiend, confined to tyrannise on unreprievable, condemned blood. Now, why John's blood is condemned, in particular, is not made clear. Nobody suggests in the play that this assassination is the consequence of anything John has done, or part of a wider historical process. So there are lots of ways you could sort of make sense of this monk's actions. You could have said it was to do with uh, John's attitude to the Pope. You could have said uh, he'd been put onto it by one of John's many enemies. Uh, there are lots of ways you could make, make a plot out of that, but in fact, uh, the play chooses not to. So John's death is not caused by Arthur's death, and it's not connected with Arthur, except perhaps in one way. In the play's final scene, a brand new character enters in some ways, this has got a parallel with the discussion we had of Richmond uh, in, in Richard III, but it's an even more uh, pointed and belated introduction here in King John. Prince Henry, the son of John, is the self-styled signet to this pale, faint swan. Keeping John's heir out of the frame until the play's dying minutes certainly works to insulate him from its pervading atmosphere of ethical expediency and self-interest but it also means that he's an entirely unknown quantity, an unsettlingly hasty alternative to the power play of the preceding acts. Perhaps, though, Prince Henry is not really unknown. It's not unreasonable to think that this second young child, who, like his predecessor in the play Arthur, is characterised by weeping, would be played by the same actor who had fallen to his death from the walls in the previous act. Arthur thus rises to triumph over John, not causally, but in some sense, sequentially. Part of the strangeness of the structure of this play is the way an older generation gives way to the younger, in a sequence in which only time, not merit, not active causation, governs uh, the, the sequence. The question to who kills Prince Arthur, already a fraught historiographical question in the Chronicles, is given a new twist here in the play and performance. No one, because he's not really dead, just waiting backstage to put on a new costume and take up his place as the new king. But even this curiously theatricalised version of regal succession is compromised in the play's final speech. Inevitably, the last word goes to the bastard, that figure of compromised inheritance and disrupted lineage. He speaks the play's final words against the newly crowned Henry, who is weeping over the body of his father. And I'll leave it to you to think 
whether these last lines are ironic or straight. Oh, let us pay the time. I'll try not to read it in a way which um, presupposes. <laughs> uh, I'll, try, I'll try and read it in a straight, straightforward way. Oh, let us, play, let us pay the time, but needful woe, since it hath been beforehand with our griefs. This England never did, nor never shall, lie at the proud foot of a conqueror, but when it first did help to wound itself. Now these her princes are come home again, come the three corners of the world in arms, and we shall shock them. Nought shall make us rue, if England to itself do rest but true. So I focused today on the death of Prince Arthur to try to analyse King John's pervading atmosphere of compromise, in which the uncertainty about the rightful king cuts the play world loose from its ethical moorings. But I've also wanted it to be a kind of case study about how Shakespeare adapts some of the questions of Tudor historiography, uh, how, how prose history can be adapted into dramatic form, and how Hollinshed's acknowledgement of competing historical narratives about the death of Arthur gets layered into the plays, extended back and forth over why and how and so what uh, Arthur dies. So this time next week, you might want to stay at home and listen to one of the previous lectures, no lecture next week. Uh, but the week after that, our sixth week, we'll be discussing King Lear. And the focusing question I've got for King Lear is, how sad is King Lear? Thank you. <laughs>